Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. And today I'm talking to Ian Livingston, gamer, businessman, author, genius. He's probably the most influential person on British culture you've never heard of. He describes himself as patient zero for the epidemic of UK geek culture. He's the man who brought Dungeons and Dragons to British shores and gave us the first global female gaming role model in Lara Croft. The father of the British gaming industry, in the incredible games room at his home, a labyrinth of pleasure for the gaming geek, we talked about how he got started, what he makes of the games industry today, and the heroes that inspired him. I was in gaming heaven. Ian Livingstone, you are a living legend. And before I start asking you questions, I want to describe where we are. We're in your, what I would call, geek room, surrounded by hundreds of board games. There are at least three life-size models of Lara Croft. There are games that I've played over 40 years that look exceptional and a book collection to be proud of. How many hours a week do you spend in this room as many as possible (laughs) (laughs) and you probably don't want me to remind you that only a couple of weeks ago you were 70 years old and I don't want to do this as a retrospective but it would be wrong of me not to come and meet a living hero without asking some of the questions I've been thinking of for years and for me in my own journey there's been points in time where I've been under intense pressure or I've been faced with a choice. So I want to take you back to the mid-1970s. You're obviously a gamer. You obviously love games, and we can talk about that in a bit. But you received, in the post, a game called Dungeons & Dragons. And then you developed it because you saw potential in it. What did you see in that game? And what was unique about that? Because, arguably, that changed the course of your life. Well, I was sharing a flat in Shepherd's Bush with two old school friends, Steve Jackson and John Peake, and we were quite heavy games players. We had pretty boring jobs, slowly paid, and so we stayed in a lot. And we used to love playing all sorts of strategy games, which were quite hard to find, mainly from the United States. So we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could somehow reach out and form a games community? And we thought the best way to do that is to write a a fanzine, a newsletter, which we did, called Alan Weasel. We sent it out to everybody we knew in games. And one of the recipients was Gary Gygax, who lived in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. We hadn't sent it to him directly, 
copy, got hold of a copy, and he wrote to us and said, love your magazine, here's this new game I've invented. And as you say, it was Dungeons and Dragons. And it didn't look much, plain box, poor illustrations, three largely unintelligible rule books. But when you opened those rule books and played, it opened your imagination like no game had ever done before, and I don't think any game ever will. This was the very first role-playing game, a game in which you as a player take on roles of heroes and wizards and clerics and explore the dungeons that are being created by what we used to call the dungeon master. And it's like theatre on the fly. You have this alter ego and you go on these daring adventures, killing monsters, finding treasure. And we found that a compelling experience. And Steve and I became immediately obsessed with D&D. John, not so much. What was the name of your first character? Anvar the Barbarian, R.I.P. I asked you that and you smiled immediately like that was an old friend you're talking about. Well, you were with these characters for a long time. I mean, this is uh, Dungeons & Dragons is not a fixed game which you play for an hour and someone's a winner. They are adventures which go on for months sometimes and you get really emotionally attached to your character as they level up and go to these extraordinary adventures and do things. you do things in the comfort of your own living room, which you would never do in real life. And so you actually feel, because the imagination is so rich, that you are killing dragons and finding legendary treasures. And it's this communal activity, which is kind of partly cooperative and partly competitive, that is such a compelling experience. How many people did you play with? And were you the dungeon master? Uh, we took it in turns to yeah. be d dungeon master, because it involved quite a lot of work. You have to do the preparatory work of designing the dungeon and populating it with monsters and treasure. But you only use the rules to determine success or failure whilst you're on these adventures. But um, it sold pretty slowly at first. When Workshop started in 1975, we were selling it in pretty low numbers through our newsletter. And we lived on a third floor flat in Shepherd's Bush. And we'd called the company Games Workshop. We used to see people milling around on the street, holding their <laughs> oh, copy yeah. of Owl and Weasel, looking for this shop. We used to open the window, looking for workshop? Up here, mate. And of course, there was no mobile phones then. We didn't even have a phone in our flat. And you eventually opened the first ever Games Workshop in Hammersmith. Yes, that was April uh, 78. But before that, we'd had a bit of a rocky road. We went to the States when we left our flat to meet Gary Gygax and sign up all the fledgling games companies. And we took quite a long time doing that. Came back, had nowhere to live and no office. When you say sign up, you mean get license arrangements to distribute? Yeah, to publish under license. So even then, quite early on, you loved games, but you realised there was a commercial market that you could develop in the UK. We didn't know how big that was going to be. We wanted to get involved with games that we actually enjoy playing because the games that were available in toy shops were pretty boring, to be honest. So you you know, threw your job in to do that? Yeah. So it's a massive leap. Well, it wasn't that massive because I didn't really enjoy the job. But, you know, my parents were very supportive, which okay. was important at that time. I mean, it was quite a big decision, I guess. But when you're living the dream, for want of a better expression, it doesn't seem so risky and you don't care about the money. You're not driven by money. It becomes a passion. You know, hopefully a byproduct of success will be money ultimately. But that's not the main reason for doing it. Anyway, we came back from the States. All the stock we had had been parked in my girlfriend's flat at the time. And then we had to find an office to operate out of. So we go to the bank manager and say, hello, we've got this great game. It's a role-playing game. You're a hero, a wizard, and you kill monsters and you find treasure. And he looks at you rather like a dog watching <laughs> television. Has no understanding whatsoever what you're talking about. And remember, this is the late 70s. The, the economy was down the toilet at the time. It was a, a torrid time. 
So we didn't get any finance. So Steve and I ended up living in a van for nearly three months. So we, we had this very small triangular life. We managed to get a, a very small office, the size of a bread bin, was used to call it. And um, when a customer came in, one of us had to leave because it was that small. <laughs> That's right. And back with estate agents and Shepherd's Bush, and we parked the van outside there because Steve had a van and joined a squash club nearby. So in the morning, we could have a shave and a shower, then into the mail order business till about midnight and back into the stinky old van to the pitter-patter of the rain. But uh, it was okay. I mean, but that is a gamer's lifestyle. And that first shop, I don't know whether I ever told you this, but I got a train up to Birmingham with Jonathan Wilkins. I got a coach down to Victoria Coach Station from Digbeth in Birmingham. We found our, this is when we were teenagers, we found our way to that shop. And there were other people who were in ex-Army and Navy combat jackets in there. Uh, and I've got a memory of going in, having had the A5 product sent to Charlie Robertson, who lived around the corner. It was like visiting a shrine. So very quickly, you realised you were building a community of people who really, it wasn't just a game, it was almost a lifestyle. Yeah, it was, it was a hobby, a hobby experience. Yeah. And we'd opened the first shop in April 78, having left the bread bin when we were living in the van outside, we managed to make enough money to have our own shop. And when we opened it, there was a huge queue outside, yeah, which was great. And we ended up hiring gamers like ourselves to run the shop, because if we'd hired traditional retailers, I don't think they'd been able to deal with our customers. Yeah. So we had to have like-minded people. And even though they might have looked like Visigoths, their passion and their knowledge resulted in them selling absolute loads yeah. of games and miniature figures and everything because they were speaking the same language as the customers. But most of our time was spent doing workshops. So it's Dungeon Dragons, then we turned Owl and Weasel into White Dwarf magazine because yeah. we wanted to kind of up our game as the hobby grew. And then, you know, throughout the 80s, I remember queuing in the middle of the night when Games Workshop opened in Birmingham. Which I was there. You were selling... <laughs> The AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide for half price, but there were only 10 on offer. And I think I was about 17th in the queue or something like that. So I missed Unlucky. out on that. <laughs> but I remember my stepdad getting up at three in the morning to drive me to Birmingham and an Allegro. And so there was a love that, I mean, you know, you've, Games Workshop, that decade, there's a whole generation of people for whom you are an iconic figure. But then in 1991, you sell the business. Yeah. What made you do that? What had happened was we'd run Games Workshop since 1975, so we'd, we'd done our time, I guess, in one respect. But there are two very relevant factors. Steve and I had started writing fighting fantasy game books in the 1980s. Penguin didn't think they were going to do very well, but they reprinted 11 times in the first month and suddenly said, can we have some more? So Steve wrote Citadel of Chaos, I wrote Forest of Doom, and by 84, uh, when a book I wrote, called Death Trap Dungeon came out, they were selling in the hundreds of thousands and it became a, a global hit. So Penguin Books wanted more and more new titles. So it's putting an enormous strain on us because we were trying to run Games Workshop during the day and going back to our now respective homes and writing these books till two o'clock in the morning. So something had to give. It was an extraordinary strain. So we we ended up putting in place a managing director, Brian Ansell. And Brian, to his credit, took it to a new, new level. He really was the man responsible for the whole Warhammer creation and push when Workshop focused on its own IP rather than selling other people's IP. 
And you know, one of the reasons why Warhammer came about is because we only had a three-year exclusive distribution agreement for D&D, at the end of which Gary Gygax wanted to merge his company, TSR, with Games Workshop. Steve and I, being independent young Brits, said no to that merger. So we had to forge our own way, and hence the new products evolved. And then Warhammer was written internally. And that became, of course, the mainstay of Workshop, which, to its credit, has done amazingly well to this day. But to get back to your question, it was the combination of being massively overworked, having our heads turned by being, you know, international famous authors, and seeing that Brian was probably doing a better job in the business than we were. And so we, we all sold out in 91 to a management buyout, and then two years later, Games Workshop was floated on the stock exchange. Okay. Do you miss it? I think I watched like a proud parent watch their children. You know, they've, it's grown up. It's doing something that I could never have done, and I'm very proud of it. Yeah. And watch its success with all. You know, not many games companies survive that test of time. I'm fighting fantasy, though. I, I mean, there's a whole generation of kids, probably their first books they read were, were those. Where did the idea for that come from? Well, because we've been playing Dungeons and Dragons, which is role-playing for groups of people, Steve and I had this conversation about how could we possibly distill the essence of, of role-playing to a single-player experience, replacing the Dungeon Master with a book. And fortuitously, a very forward-thinking editor, Geraldine Cook from Penguin Books attended one of our games days in 1979, which we held at the Royal Holter Cultural Hall. And she was fascinated by people playing D&D with such vigor, enthusiasm, and, and you know, never wanting it to end, and seeing their eyes light up with wonder as they go on these fantastic journeys of the mind. And she asked if she could write a book about this hobby. And we said, well, rather than write a good book about it, why can't we write a book that gives you an experience of it? So this is how this concept, which we called The Magic Quest, came along. And we we worked on this concept and it became The Warlock of Firetop Mountain, which was the first one. And she told us subsequently that the managing director at the time, when told about the idea of an interactive book, laughed so hard that he hit his head on the table. So that's why they weren't very committed as a company. And they only sold a few copies of the first one. But then it spread by word of mouth. You know, the playground power was the virality of the day. And they started selling out in, in regions and they reprinted so many times until, as I said, we had to, to write new ones. But the thing is, why were they so successful? Well, normally books are a passive experience. And as we all know, children get turned off by long page after page of prose where they don't necessarily relate to the hero. But in a fighting fantasy game book, you, the reader, are the hero. These are books broke up into 400 numbered paragraphs. At the end of each one, you have to make a choice simplistically left or right, but then there are puzzles and problems, and if you find a key in one room, you'll be able to open a, a door further on in the adventure. They're all in their sets in the world of Tolkien-esque monsters and magic. And so there are hundreds of ways of going through the book, but only one successful way. But in giving children choice is empowering. And because they start to talk about it in the first person, I went on this adventure, I killed the goblins and I finally fell on these poison spikes and I did it again and I turned left this time and I found the secret door. And they talk about it as if they were there. And But they were actually criticised at the time. The Evangelical Alliance published an eight-page warning guide about them saying, because you're interacting with ghouls and demons, you're bound to get possessed by the devil. A local housewife in deeper suburbia phoned her local radio station and said, 
that having read one of my books, her son levitated. No way. And then the local vicar near Penguin Books threatened to chain himself to the railings until they were banned. There were petitions sent in saying they were being harmful for the kids. Magazine articles written saying the dangers to the children's imaginations because these books are extreme. And yet, over time, teachers started saying they were great for reluctant readers. They actually increased literacy levels by 20%. Got a whole generation of children reading. And to this day, I keep meeting people now in their 40s saying it's the only reason they got into reading, the only reason they started being creative writing or art or inspired them to do the stuff. So I'm only realising now what an impact it had on children's imagination. And when they suddenly think back to when they're reading it, they're suddenly in a, a place that is, you know, deep in their subconscious. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You then end up being a fairly heroic figure in the video games industry. What what was the transition there? Well, it's actually through Death Trap Dungeon. Um, it was number one in the children's bestsellers list. And I was at workshop that one day and two guys came along, Dominic Wheatley and Mark Strawn, who just started this new company called Domark. And they said, are you doing this amazing stuff with game books? We're starting a games company off. Would you write the first game for us? So I said, sure not knowing much about video games at all, other than as a player. So I designed their first game, it's called Eureka, which is a, an adventure game through time, trying to find a, ultimately a, a treasure. But the important thing was they were offering a £25,000 prize for anybody who could solve it, which ended up the clues in the, in the rules booklet, in the artwork and in the programme itself, you'd end up with a number, which is a telephone number, which got you through to a solicitor's office and a recorded message you could leave and say I win and we had it programmed in Hungary for secrecy so no one could actually find out uh, all our dark secrets of where the, the clues were hidden and I was fascinated by this development process and uh, instead of taking royalties I took equity in the startup and when I sold out of workshop this was 1984 when I sold out of workshop in 91 I invested more money into into Domark and joined their board as vice chairman and, and Domark metamorphosed into IDOS and I became executive chairman. But of course, the big break came when less than a year later, we acquired the studio that was developing Tomb Raider and the, the and wonderful did, Lara Croft. And did you know Lara was going to be a hit there and then? Well, when we were buying the company, it was um, IDOS was quite small and... I was tasked with doing basically the due diligence for the studios and the content. So I went over there and met Jeremy Heath-Smith, who was the MD of Core Design. 
And he showed me all through the games and development, went through the whole studio, and in the last room, you know, corny might though it might seem, I guess you should say it was love at first sight when I saw this amazing character on screen. There's only six people in the room, amazing achievement what they were doing because this was one of the very first characters of a 3D character in a 3D world. Historically, video games at that time were basically side-scrolling 2D games. But here's one with a 3D character which moves into the screen. And not only that, you had a camera which allowed you to see up and down. It had incredible graphics, incredible technology. It had puzzle solving, combat, adventure, and of course, a unique character. Now, why was Lara Croft a female? Because historically, most video games had male characters. But Toby Gard, who's a 2D artist and 3D artist there, had suggested, no, why not try a, f a female character? And you know, Jeremy and the team said yes. And thus it proved to be rather successful. I mean, those are sort of three eras, I think, for that people sort of certainly know you in, in public life by. But I know you when you became very interested in public policy and evangelism and it was almost like you were at a stage of life where you're trying to give something back to an industry that had been very successful and you lobbied me as a minister principally about the video game sector to start with i don't know if you remember yeah it was, it was about two things about computing also about video games tax relief yeah which ultimately was a, a successful yeah. campaign and stopped a lot of very good developers moving to canada but what made you move into what i would say is a slightly drier area of life dealing with a load of politicians. Was it a sense of responsibility or uh, a desire to do something different? I think it's just a bit about my father. He was a, quite a humble guy and he always wanted to do stuff for other people. He didn't really care about himself much. And I'm not saying I'm being as altruistic as that, but I get a lot of enjoyment helping other people. It just makes me feel good about myself in many ways. So I wouldn't, I try not to make that sound selfish, but it just comes naturally to trying to help others you're now doing that in education. I mean, I think we probably agree, and I think the sort of people who are going to listen to this podcast will know that AI is going to be transformational in the lives of future workers, that the only jobs the robots aren't going to be doing are the ones that require emotional literacy and caring, which I think means we need a revolution in the curriculum. And you've been arguing very strongly over years that we need huge curricular reform. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, it, it kind of worries me that, uh, I mean, you see children who, who love learning but hate school. That seems a bit mad to me, kind of a waste of resource all around. In the IT industry, for example, there's probably a million jobs out there that need doing, and we haven't got the uh, a workforce equipped and skilled to take those jobs. And it's even worse when it comes to coding. But I think the education system itself always seems to want to focus around measurement and we're effectively using children as guinea pigs to assess schools rather than wondering what are they actually learning in schools. So it seems to me the in the 21st century that the education has really fallen behind the skills required for the 21st century. So if you use the workplace as an example, we collaborate, we have different skills, we don't do the stuff we can't or shouldn't do. And yet the school system wants to have a standardized metric where I can judge each person against the same subject with the same metric. So I can get a standardized mark, which then you can go to university, but I'm sorry, you can't. And 
what I'd like to see more of is a kind of cross-curricular education, um, multidisciplined, more project-based, more learning by doing, adding context, having more applied learning. Because children are doing all their interesting stuff, watching YouTube or being online or learning from their friends. They're doing the boring stuff at school. So, you know, I've seen, you know, my own children, you know, one was particularly good at maths, could do algebra, quadratic equation, perhaps, but no idea what the application was for these things. So all I'd like is that education somehow reflects society to give children a more vocation. We love, in this country, commentators but not practitioners. You know, if you've got the history of art, did it at Cambridge, you're revered. If you actually paint, you're kind of low life. So why can't we just kind of value skills the same way as we value qualifications and know-how as much as we value knowledge and then join up the left side and the right side of the brain? You know, Leonardo da Vinci, he was the ultimate polymath. He was a mathematician as well as an amazing artist. And we should not think that creativity is somehow something that's nice to have. We take actually stripping creativity out of the curriculum. The arts are being marginalized. They don't even count now in the EBAC. So it's not an essential for disciplines. And I think for a country that relies so much on its creativity, look at our film, fashion, music, architecture, advertising, publishing, video games, they rely on a marriage of, of, of creativity and in taste of, of video games, that marriage of art and, and science and technology. So to strip the arty side out of it is crazy. At the same time, China is doing its best to try and move up the value chain of creativity because they're very good at executing on other people's ideas. So they want to move from made in China to designed in China. So they're desperate to know how to become more creative. At the same time, we're desperate to try and strip creativity out of the curriculum because it can't be measured. It can't, you can't weigh it or measure it. But it is an absolutely essential intellectual property creating thing. So a video game, case in point, video games industry, $150 billion a year industry, 3 billion people playing. Uh, it's going to be 200 billion value dollars in, in in four years time we're very good at it and yet the skills needed to make a game can you get those in school probably not so if you gave a case in point of where do the computer science learn their computer science com computing software engineers not in school the artist well that's being marginalized music being marginalized creative writing not really done it's all about talking about other people's writing it's just that we seem to not want to do the creative bit so what i'm trying to say in a very long-winded way is that we need more hands-on learning learning by doing to add context and application to children so they feel ownership of, of something and learn by doing in the end i think it's about developing an emotional intelligence and i think why i connect with you is that game playing gave me that I mean, you do collaborate when you play games like D&D. &D. And the very best video games require creative problem solving. But they did a study on old people. I don't know if you saw that um, Horizon program a couple of years back. And they got a load of over 60-year-olds to go in to have an MRI scan. 
and me measure their cognitive activity and give them a tablet, a games tablet, to take away, come back a month later, and they'd never played games before, measure their cognitive activity, hugely increased. So the argument is, of course, is to give old people a tablet to play on rather than a tablet to swallow. I've done the policy stuff with you now. I, I'm genuinely, this is like a treasure trove where we're sitting. We've got Jimi Hendrix on the wall there. And I noticed that as well as video games, you've got a lot of references to music. Is music a big part of your Yeah, it well? is. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, brought up in, uh, on really of a love of blues, British blues. Uh, John Mayall used to go to the Twisted Wheel Club in Manchester. I used to see all the great guitarists that Mayall used to bring through, yeah, yeah. from Mick Taylor to Peter Green to Eric Clapton, all went through his band. But my favourite, of course, was the uh, was Jimi Hendrix. He had that emotional tug on your heartstrings that no other guitarist, I think, has ever done before or ever will again. So uh, I like real earthy style. So Miles Davis in jazz, uh, Little Walter, blues harmonica player. Any bands that your kids listen to that you like? I would say absolutely none. <laughs> You're allowed to be. You're allowed to say that. Well, I would like to say, though, that they're, they're beginning to like some of my records because I never threw them away. I'm not very good at throwing stuff away. <laughs> I mean, I, you can see up there, there's a there's a white box Dungeons & Dragons, 1975, unopened, cellophane wrapped in up there. Can we actually have a look at that? You can. Can we, can we, can we do this? Is the thing. I mean, so for the people that are listening to this, I am holding the first ever... It's not the first ever, a very early. A very early D&D. &D. It's from the 19th, from 75. From 75. Probably not the first print run, but right up there. But it's the same, it's the same typeface Dungeons and Dragons that I remember. $10, unopened. You wouldn't even get that on eBay now. No, well, you'd have to pay a lot. I mean, you're smiling when, you're smiling because you could see I'm smiling looking at this. Well, I'm smiling. Not about the amount of money it's worth, and in case you might drop it, put a dent in it. <laughs> I try not to jump. Don't worry, I won't get it out with me. I mean, the honest truth is, Ian, there are things in here that should be in the British Library. I mean, if you've got you in that box there, you've got manuscripts from the books. Yeah, every single book I wrote, Final Fantasy game book, I wrote um, with a pen, Blimey. fountain pen. And behind you, you've got what looks like a very complicated flowchart. Yes, well, this uh, this one here is. Um, Deathtrap Dungeons, so this is how I used to write them. So you start at reference number one here, and then the path splits. So you're writing multiple storylines at once, but you keep a track of all those storylines on this one piece of paper. And then you allocate what happens at each point. So you might find two gold pieces there, you get attacked by a giant spider there. So you have to bring them back to certain pinch points to get information that they must have to be able to continue. It's about a metre long on, on tape paper together on a hard board. I mean, this really, you have to leave this for the nation, by the way. Just as well, because I'd probably end up with a skip if my kids <laughs> hung on to it. You definitely can't. I mean, you've got dagger question mark. I mean, looking at it, you you can see you're working out in the book. And then amongst all these games, what is the one you're most proud of owning? Well, you can't have one, Tom. It's, it's like saying, what's my favourite child? And I've got four, you know. <laughs> The favourite things I've got in here, I guess, is some of the board games that we put out originally. Okay. And then there's the D&D &D box. Then there's my advanced D&D &D box signed by the great Gary Gygax himself. You've got to show me that one. Okay. Okay. I mean, it's 20-odd years, more, 
79 that was assigned. So for Ian Livingstone from his friend Gary Gygax. I, I mean, I'm just looking through the book. I mean, I used to read this book for hours on end. <laughs> where's Where's the gelatinous cube? Is that in it? No, that's the Monster Manual. That'll be the Monster Manual. You've got manual. the Monster Manual yeah. here. There's the Dungeon Master's Guide. You've, the got, that's you've it. got the Player's Handbook there. So that's the that's handbook. the one he signed there. This is the this is the one that Andy Robinson would read out of. He was the, always <laughs> our Dungeon Master. A pioneer of D&D in the mother country. What was he like? Gary he was Gary. a fantastic gregarious character. He's a raconteur. He was larger than life. Uh, he yeah. made Dungeon Dragons happen through his personality. Yeah. And, um, you know, playing D&D with him was amazing. Would, would he be the du- yeah, Dungeon Master? Dungeon Master, yeah. Yeah, his arms were flying around all yeah. over the place. And I remember he said once that um, he preferred reading to television because the pictures were better. Because he was such a creative Because the imagination. Yeah. I mean, Ian, I've genuinely enjoyed interviewing you today. I'm in your lair. Are you playing any games at the moment? All the time. Mainly board games. Yeah. I've been running the same games group since 1980s with the same people in it. Steve Jackson, Peter Molyneux and four others. I've published 485 newsletters to a circulation of six. I keep a record of every game we play. And we have a points allocated to each it. And then at the end of the year, we tally up the points and the winner wins the Pagoda Cup for another year. I am current holder of the Pagoda Cup. I'm very proud to, to announce that. So that was my chat with Ian Livingston. And as you can tell, I got to indulge my fanboy fantasies in his incredible games. Join me again soon when I'll be talking to another person of interest. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producers are Lucy Pullin and Tim Cunningham. This episode was edited by Matt and Scott at Podmonkey. The music by Tom Gray. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.